Welcome to Everything You Know About Disability is Wrong, a podcast by disabled people for disabled people. But if you're not disabled, stick around. You might learn something new. Oh my goodness. You are such an inspiration. Wow, you really are. You're so strong. Can I pet your service dog? One, two, three, let's go. We are artists, parents, teachers, good guys, bad guys, students, leaders. I'm not your inspiration. Yeah, I'm fully who I am. Got my own expectations that don't fit into your plans. I'm not your sad story, so I wrote it in this song. Everything you know about disability is wrong. Yeah, everything you know. Yeah, everything you know about disability is wrong. Welcome to another episode of Everything You Know About Disability is Wrong. And today, we have a guest, Melissa Thompson. She's a disability rights consultant, activist, social worker, and creator of the hashtag disability to Right. She's also the founder of Rant Your Voice, an organization that promotes empowerment, education, inclusion, and self-advocacy for disabled people. So welcome, Melissa. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me on. This is an exciting episode because it is our final episode of season one, and it will be airing during July, which is Disability Pride Month. So very excited for this to be the Disability Pride episode. Just to kick things off, since this is our final episode of the first season, we're going to do things a little differently. Normally, we end the episode with what we call our Ask Us Anything, where we answer questions from our listeners who email us in. And we just decided we would start off the conversation with our Ask Us Anything, because it has to do with dating and relationships, which is what we're talking about this whole season. So the Ask Us Anything is, do you think meeting an online relationship in person as soon as possible is necessary for a successful relationship? So I think they're wondering about the urgency of meeting in person. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, both of you. I think that, I think it is important to meet, I wouldn't say immediately but maybe once you both know that you're in this thing and it's you know, just something that you want to see where it goes and if you want to be exclusive you know and have titles of what you want to have meeting in the first couple of months would be helpful just so that you can know the interaction face to face and not just online, you know, even if you FaceTime or text, you know, that in-person interaction can tell you a lot. So, you know, kind of coming out of a situation, I feel like I would have wanted to have met sooner to kind of know what I figure out after we met. Yeah, definitely, because like, even if you talk to somebody every day online, it's so different in person and it's like they're sharing a different personality online than in person. So I do think if your mission in a relationship is to eventually move to an in-person relationship, I do think 
it's very important to meet soon because from personal experience I think that if I had met this person sooner I would not have wasted five and a half years in a relationship. Shade. Shade. I, I feel like I love how we're on the same page about this. It's like, yeah. And I think it's really hard, particularly when you're talking about disabled folks that we're here. Traveling is hard for some of us to do. So you do rely being online to make your connections. But like you said, Aaron, it's just, there's just some things you really get in person that you don't get online. You know, no matter how often you talk, no matter what the, whatever modes of communication you do, that in-person presence tell you a lot. Yeah, definitely. And we've spent so much time this season talking about like ableism on dating apps and like people that just are not the way they seem on the internet. And I think you can like really get to the truth of who a person is once you have that initial meeting, because even if things have gotten like very smooth and they're not awkward online at all, that you still have to get through the in-person awkwardness, which is its own thing. And I think, I mean, for me specifically, like being autistic on dating apps, I feel like I have such a strong like internet persona that is one of my like masks. And it's really hard for me to be authentic just via like DMs or just via starting out. Like I just feel like I'm trying so hard to be cool on the internet that I'm like not not my realist self at all because I'm not cool. I'm like as awkward as it gets. So I think that it's it goes like both ways for me is that like I need to meet in person because I need to see if you actually like like my real self too. Right. Yeah. Internet dating is its own it's just its own beast. It is. It just feels sometimes very discouraging when, you know, the honeymoon phase ends and then you realize, oh, this is who and what I'm dealing with. Yes, absolutely. So the next question I'm going to ask comes from me because my one of my best friends is also an LCSW and she's a therapist and we're constantly talking about the way like her activism affects her dating life because she always, she like wants to get deep right away. What's your experience been as um, an activist, as someone who's creating movements and is a social worker? How does that kind of affect your dating experience? Yeah, it definitely impacts it. One of the, the issues that people do that I notice is just being bad at communication, like horrible. And that was the main issue in my past relationship when I realized that my partner could not communicate well. And and it went outside of his own disabilities. This was just him and his past relationship traumas that he was trying to bring into our relationship. And these are things that I picked up on easily because, you know, as your friend who's a therapist, that educational background is brought into my relationships. You know, it's how I show up as somebody who is very intentional about being a good communicator, a good listener, a good supporter as an individual, then as a partner. And I think that the thing that I have found is that a lot of the people that I have dated, you know, those who happen to be men are just very bad at it. And it's something that I cannot ignore, particularly the older that I have gotten. And it's something that I am quick to call out, and then when things don't improve, dip out. 
which is what I did in my last relationship was, you know, I broke up with him because it's just not something that I wanted to put up with as a disabled woman. And I shouldn't have to put up with when we're well over 30 and we should know how to communicate and then be self-aware. Yeah, I think that's really important to like know when you've hit your limit, especially, I mean, this is my assumption of everything I know about you, but as a disability activist, which is a place where a lot of people in the general public are not informed on what's going on, as a Black woman, as a social worker, there's so many areas where I feel like you could be kind of forced to be in a teaching position. How do you balance that in a relationship setting? It's something that I I don't want to do that labor. <laughs> I think it's unnecessary labor. And it is tiring, you know, particularly being a Black woman, you know, just in general, and then all the other components of who I am, you know, when it comes to my identities and also professionally, it is a lot to hold and it is unfair, you know, to expect people to teach you these things. And I think that people are not aware of the burden of what it means to have to hold that kind of space, whether you want to or kind of forced to or expected to. And it's not something that I'm interested in, not at this stage in my life. You know, I think, I think something I had to learn is I could be understanding, I can be supportive, I can be caring, but I'm not trying to mother, I'm not trying to parent, and that's not my job. It's not something that I want to do in relationships, it's not something that I want to do in friendships, you know, unless I'm being paid, it's not something I want to do professionally with colleagues who may not, you know, be black or be a woman or film that expect you to teach them things. It's something that I have had to be very intentional about and hold a, hold a firm boundary on. And that boundary does exist in all the facets that I do engage with people in, regardless of the relationship type. And it's just something that I really had to learn because if you don't hold true to those boundaries, you will find yourself doing that incredible emotional labor and that can allow you to be resentful. And that's not something that I want to be in my relationship. I don't want to feel resentful towards my partner because they're not fully equipped with the tools that they need for themselves first before they're even able to be a partner to me. I think what you just brought up is really important that like, are you acting in ways that would invite resentment into the relationship? If you feel like you have to teach people things or you have to constantly remind people to respect your identity, there's no way you can do that and not invite resentment into that space. I think that's just a really, really great yeah, point. Because I think that the resentment is kind of sneaky and it's a little too late when you kind of realize that that resentment or that regret has taken root. And it's something that I have had to be mindful of. And again, you know, I know we're talking about romantic relationships, but this goes into friendships as well. Think about the type of labor that you're exerting for friends who may not be always emotionally available or present for you. You know, I know that for me, one of the reasons that I had become so aware of this is because I'm always the responsible friend, like the kind of the mom in the group. And like, it's very tiring because we're all over 30 now. You know, at least in my friend group, we're all over 30. 
we all have some life experience and we should all be figuring out how to care for ourselves without overwhelming our support system you know and I realized that being in that mom role is not something that I want to be in in my friendships so that has naturally transitioned into being aware that I don't want that parent to role in my relationships in my romantic ones you know so I think that for me sometimes when you are in you know emotionally giving empath you know however you want to define a person you have to be conscious of the ways in which you're showing up in your relationships and be aware if people are whether intentionally or unintentionally taking advantage of that and how does that make you feel and that's something I had to be aware of because that's my responsibility to be aware of and if it's something that that I don't like that is happening then it's on me to say something and then make the necessary shift to get a more balanced situation if it's possible and if it's not then maybe reevaluate that particular relationship you know as to whether or not it's sustainable for me overall yeah i know like in previous relationships i've always not always but i felt like i was your mom like you said and that's just really like not ideal obviously but it also makes you feel bad about yourself at least i did because it was like am i settling am i in this relationship so i can feel you know powerful or feeling like i'm you know not better than them but like i'm more mature I'm more this. And to me, that was really... I had to look at myself and see, is this what I want for myself? Is this fair to them? And I... This is a while ago. But now I've realized, you know, you can't be everything to somebody and you can't be their mom or dad or whoever. As a person who feels like I am like out of control in every social setting I'm ever in. I think that there have been times that I have like dated and specifically leaned towards emotionally unavailable people because it felt like, well, I have something to teach them now. And yeah, I just think what both of you said about like, no, that's got to be my own boundary to make. Like I have to decide if that's something I want to do. And I think that I, I hope that there's like at least one person listening to this who is a self-identified mom friend of the group and is like rethinking is like, did I put myself in that role or was I put into that role? Right. And I think that, you know, it's one thing to be a good support to your partner. Like we all should strive to be that. But when you're realizing that you're always giving and you're always receiving and whatever that you may be receiving back doesn't compare to what you're giving, that's where the imbalance is starting. And, you know, like, you know, in relationships, you know, there are going to be times to where you may give more because you see the need that your partners have to where you want to, you know, fill in the gap for them. And there, and this should also be moments to where your partner can give to you when you're low on spoons or just 
have a lot of emotional things going on or just life stuff is happening. You know, it should be this natural ebb and flow to where, you know, there are times where you may do more, there are times where they may do more, but the interaction shouldn't lean heavily into only one direction. You know, and I think that's the thing that I've had to realize is that I don't want it to lean unfairly in that one direction, like a um, like some scales to where, you know, it's going to be kind of up and down on either one. But it should always come to a middle eventually at some point. You shouldn't just lean one away um, and not eventually kind of get to that middle. And I think that's what I've had to realize is like, am I exerting more time, energy, resources, money, whatever, than this person and what they're able to do. And is it of the same value? Even if it may be different than what they're giving, is it still of the same value as what I'm doing? I think that's something I had to realize as well, you know, about, you know, when does that imbalance take place? When does that shift happens and how do you recognize it? And I think even when you're having those realizations or when you you know, you take those lessons away from previous relationships. I felt like well, while while I was in those relationships, I felt like I lost myself. And I think that in my current relationship, we don't have that dynamic. So I felt like this is me. They're seeing me as who I am, not me as in a role that I should not have been in. And I think that's the thing you make a great point. You know, relationships should enhance you and not shrink you. You know, you should feel like you're able to bloom in a relationship just as they're able to bloom. And if you feel like you're withering, then how are you going to bloom in that type of environment? Exactly. Yeah, that's a very, like, great visual how do the two of you like avoid settling or what what is what does that word mean to you because I feel like it's a pretty charged word in terms of dating and relationships in general you know no one should settle like whatever that you desire in a relationship that's not harmful or hurtful to yourself or the person or persons that you're interested in go for it if you're of color you know, you're expected or sometimes just downright told that your expectations are too high. If I am too much for somebody, then that means that that's not my somebody, <laughs> you know? And I think that when you settle, you're settling for so, so much less than what you deserve. And as a disabled person, you know, living in a world to where society is always telling you that you deserve less, where you deserve less money, you deserve, you deserve to receive benefits that are you know, insufficient to keeping you out of poverty. Like the whole settling that messages that disabled people endure include dating and include everything else that we, that we interact with in our society. So as disabled folks, it's a very hard reality to break out of and not feeling like you have to settle because nobody wants to date me because I look like this or my brain works this way or my body does these things and it's like that's not true 
you know, you will find somebody that will like you for you. And I know it sounds so cliche. I know that it sounds like, ugh, like, I hear you, but it's hard out here to find somebody who wants to engage with you in the ways that makes you you. But it is true, as cliche as it sounds. Like, you would, you would never have to settle for the person that values you for your whole self, not just for the parts that, that they like the most. And I think that's how I look at settling. I never have to settle for less than what I know I deserve as a person, particularly as a disabled woman, and anybody that expects me or treats me like such isn't worth my time, you know? Yeah, I think that's super important. And also the like idea of that like, accommodation and like especially accessibility accommodation like is not the best it can get. Like I guess the best way for me to explain that is that I early on in the relationship I'm in now, I remember like having like a moment of sensory overload that led to a meltdown. And afterward, having those like my partner, he was he was so wonderful and cared for me and helped helped me get like through that and take care of my needs. And afterward, just thinking like, wow, he's like the he he put up with that or like he thought that that was okay. That means he's like the greatest person in the whole world. And I'm I'm glad that I like caught that thought and just thought like him accepting me for me, this part of me that is not going to go away is a part of who I am is not behavior that's enough to put him on a pedestal. Like that's the, the bar, that's the minimum there. And I think that that is just really important. And as we're talking about like the concepts of settling and how it has to do with disability, I think there is a level of like someone treating you as a full human and like making sure your relationship is accommodating that is not the ceiling. That's the floor. Let's start there. <laughs> totally, yeah. You know, it's early on in dating. I was very like, no one's going to want to date me. And it was hard. It is harder if you're disabled to find somebody. Like, it just is. Because of, you know, ableism and assumptions. And even when you do find somebody. People on the outside don't think it's real. And they don't think that it's legitimate, that it's a real, true, loving relationship. And I think as a disabled person, you kind of internalize that sometimes. So, you know, for me, settling means loving myself. First, in understanding my reality is not what ableist people say it is. And if I'm happy in a relationship and I'm getting fulfillment and joy out of a relationship, then that's not settling. Settling is saying to yourself, I don't like this, but... This is all I can get, which is not true. But it is hard, you know, because ableism is, is a lot. And you do, inter- even if you say 
you know, I'm such a strong, independent woman, you still internalize some things. So it's hard to get out of that mindset sometimes. Yeah, I think there's an interesting line there between like settling as a negative versus choosing comfort as a positive. Like I think that in my younger, more toxic eras, <laughs> there were times that I thought that like if something was comfortable, it wasn't good. Like love had to be like risky and intense and scary and like learning the difference between like something being intense versus something being intimate <laughs> and like intimacy can come in comfort actually and that's different than settling like choosing the path of least resistance doesn't necessarily I don't even know what that phrase means choosing the um like choosing your comfortable path does not necessarily mean you're choosing the settling path and I just think that that's an interesting point you bring up Aaron there I think that's a really good point because people feel that if your relationship doesn't have the drama, then it's boring. And, you know, I know for me, the, the older I get, the less drama I want in, in my relationships. <laughs> you know, and if all your relationships have drama, then you need to evaluate what you're doing here. You know, like, is it you? Is it them? Is it the both of you? Or, you know, however many people may be in this relationship. You know, I think that we have to be mindful of the messages, kind of like what Aaron was talking about messages that we may get as women, femme-identifying people, but also messages in the media about, you know, what makes a relationship look stable versus not. And people think that intense love or moving too fast to where that you don't really know each other very well and not just sometimes slowing down and getting to know each other. Because, yes, you may have strong feelings for somebody. Like, love is a very, is one of the emotions that makes no sense. <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and I think in that you still have to have sense as to how you're engaging. And you can pick up certain things that, you know, may be a green flag, yellow flag, or red flag. And I think that's something that I realize is that. I want my relationship to go at a pace that works for both of us and don't feel like we have to make it messy or make it rush to make it real. Because that doesn't make a relationship real or sustainable or healthy or satisfying. Absolutely. I think that's a question that my younger self would have definitely wanted to have the like, is this fast pace moving at this pace because they don't want me to catch something? I never even thought about that. That's... Very helpful. I was going to move move forward a little bit on the, so one of the natural things that gets talked about as we're talking about like dating, relationships, marriage, whatever happens is family planning. And I love the, is article the correct blog? P the piece you wrote about my decision to be child free has nothing to do with my disability. I love that piece. And any of our listeners, if you have not read it, read it. It's really great. Just because I think I relate very heavily as I've entered my late 20s and have had the th thoughts of like not wanting to have kids. The combating thought that I hear in my head is like, 
well, I don't want people to think I didn't have kids because I'm autistic. And then I'm like, so I'll have kids just to show them I can and I'd be a great autistic mom. And then I'm like, well, maybe spite is not the best reason to bring a child (laughs) into the world. So just I would love to hear even more than what I know from the article, like your thoughts on that. I think it's just such an important topic. Yeah, like, I think, you know, the whole point that I wanted to write that was to give a different narrative, because, you know, you're right, you know, when people hear you say that, oh, I don't want to have children, they do assume that it's because of whatever disability or disabilities that you have. And for some of us, that's not the case. You know, yes, I do know disabled folks who don't want to have children because of their disabilities, you know, they don't want to pass along. They would feel guilty if their child resented them for being disabled. There's a lot of heaviness for some disabled folks about having children. But it's also on the other end of that spectrum, those of us who are like, you know what? I would be okay. I would be a great mom if I wanted to be that. But it's not a life choice that I want to make. You know, and... And that's what I wanted to convey in the article is that some of us, like many non-disabled folks, choose to not have children because we don't want to. (laughs) And having children is a choice. And, you know, in the article, I mentioned how children, I feel like children should be wanted, you know, because they are a joy and an incredible responsibility. Like children are the most, most permanent thing you can do as a person, you know, having children. You know, and and for me, it's like, well, that is a lot. <laughs> I don't know if I want something that permanent, you know, in my life. And and I think it's okay. You know, I think that as disabled folks, you know, reach, you know, get closer to your 30s like you are and those of us deep in, my, in our 30s like I am, you know, it's okay to really evaluate what do I want my life to look like? And that's what I discussed in the article, you know, over the course of the pandemic, I really decided, like, you know what, as much as I would be a good mom, that's not something that I want to do. And that's okay. And I think the messaging about being child free, whether you're disabled or not, is so negative. People feel like you're being selfish or, you know, it's your biological duty to have children and, you know, you should want to populate the earth and all that jazz. And it's like, why? Like, why should I want to do something so permanent to please other people or their value systems or their way of thinking? I'm like, children are not something that you just have haphazardly, you know. Children are a serious responsibility. And I think that we don't consider that as people who can have kids, you know, and I think that's what we see the realities of. And that's something that we don't have hard discussions about that, you know, are important so that if we do decide to have children, we're able to care for them in the ways that are sustainable, that are loving, that are safe, that are empowering and not, you know, deprivating to them, to their development, to their growth that's not creating unnecessary trauma for them. You know, these are the things that if you want to have children, you need to think about. You know, it's not a, it's not a game. <laughs> Being a parent is not a game. No. It is a full-time job. And, and I'm not saying all this to scare anybody, but 
you know, these are the things that you think about. Like when you seriously think about, do I want to have kids or not? These are the things to take into consideration because you are responsible for somebody forever. And if we decide that we don't want to have kids, that doesn't mean that we are literally child free. You know, we're going to have kids in our orbit in some way, shape or form and decide what kind of role do you want to play, you know, towards those children in your orbit, whether they're your friend's kids or you have nieces and nephews or other nibblings, you know, if you do community work or you're a teacher or whatever ways of engagement you have with kids, you know, how can you be a supportive adult to them to where you are a good foundation within their orbit? You know, so those are the things that I really thought about in my decision that I cover in my article that I wish more people thought about whether they decide to have children or not. Just think more critically about that. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, I think that's one thing that people should ask themselves is like, am I even a supportive adult to the kids in my life already before deciding to have, I think that's, yeah, that's super important. And like, I love the emphasis on taking the time to know what you want, because I mean, just in this conversation, it's been established that you like and respect kids enough to advocate for society to be better for them. And you would make a great mom and you still are choosing not to because you don't want to. And want is important. Like, I think that that is the the way that wanting in our society is so like tied with like selfish connotation. It's just it has to be taken out of the equation because it's it's actually selfless to ask, like, do I really want this? Because children deserve to be wanted all the time. Even when they're annoying you, you still want to want them, you know, on those hard days, you know, like, you know, and I think that's the thing is like, you should, the desire to have you should be a want and not a pressure to fulfill other people's ideas on what your life should look like. A want, not a should. Absolutely. And I think that, like, what you wrote about just, like, the way we treat kids, that is always a really important topic of conversation for me because I do find that in – sometimes in, like, neurodivergent community spaces, you'll find that's where there's a lot of people who, like, detest children because, let's be real, children can be sensory overload. (laughs) Like, they're loud and sticky (laughs) and don't know that some people don't like that. And I get that. But the one thing that I'm always trying to get people who have that kind of disdain for children, especially in the neurodivergent community to understand is that a lot of the kids that are being the loudest, the most like making the biggest fuss are just neurodivergent kids themselves. (laughs) I mean, and I think that there's a level of just, I, I wish there was more community care. So I think Thank you for writing both of those pieces. I think they're narratives that you don't hear enough in general public. Yeah, and I think that to the point that you're making, folks have to realize that you may have been that annoying kid as a neurodivergent mm-hmm. kid or a neurodiverse kid. You know, and I think that's the thing. It's like people forget how they were treated as kids. You know, because I remember in that article about being hostile towards kids, mm-hmm. I remember the way I felt when I saw adults talk about the disabled kids who were in the accessible classrooms, special education classrooms. And it weirded me out as a kid. So I'm like, they're a kid like <laughs> me. They just, they may communicate differently. They may move about differently. 
that they're still a kid. And it's not their fault. <laughs> you know, and even then, I didn't understand the harshness that the adults had. So it is kind of disheartening to hear some disabled adults not, you know, fully assess that, hey, some adults may have been talking about you like that. And you need to be kind of aware of how you talk about kids. Because the thing I always remember with kids is that they're experiencing everything for the first time. Like everything for the first time. And that's overwhelming or overloading within itself. You know, and they, some of them may be experiencing things with no full guidance and support from the adults in their life. You know, for whatever means and, you know, for whatever reasons. And they're just really trying to figure it out. And when I think about that, that gives me the patience to deal with kids. You know, it's just knowing that they're experiencing things for the first time or the first few times where I have had many of years of experience of things. I can show them compassion and understanding that they deserve to have. I love that. I think that's just so important. So in our last, well, we've got like 10-ish minutes left of recording. I want to, one topic I, I mentioned at the beginning, but this episode is one last episode of season one, but two coming out during Disability Pride Month. So just curious, what is, what does Disability Pride mean to you? To me, Disability Pride is being joyful. You know, I think that when the month comes, you know, we talk about the things that, you know, we're still fighting for in the community, which is important, very important. But we don't talk a lot about the things that are joyful. That that's kind of leads into the pride part of the phrase. That leads more into the positivity. So for me, I want to focus on the joyfulness of what it means to be disabled and to have community and to shed some of those messages that we talked about before about what society, you know, projects upon us and us having to figure out that, hey, that's not my reality. That's the thoughts and opinions of other people. I don't have to hold those things. It's the releasing of those negative connotations. You know, I think that's what disability pride is for me, is to really lean into the pride. You know, leaning into what makes us so dynamic and unique and powerful and beautiful and creative, you know, that's what I want to focus on for Disability Pride. And also, in a little bit of selfishness, July would be the 10th year of me doing this activism work. So I'm celebrating 10 years of doing this work, you know, and seeing it bloom and grow in ways that I wasn't expecting. So Disability Pride for me in July, we'll have a twofold, you know, approach. Of course, enjoying the community and those that I know and our history, what makes us incredible. And also celebrating this body of work that I have established and, you know, just reflecting over the last decade and looking forward to the next. Well, congratulations. That's really awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I've been following you and have been your friend for a while, and every time you do something big, I'm just like having a celebration. 
in my head, because, like, your work is so important, and really, like, everyone has to see it and experience it, because, like, especially as a black woman in the disability space, you don't, as your hashtag says, disability to white, and I think, like, you're awesome. That's it. <laughs> you're amazing, so, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. Congratulations. Echoing everything Aaron just said, mega congratulations on a decade of this work. And thank you for a decade of this work. I think that everything you said about pride is so important and it can be easy because there still are so many spaces where disability is not talked about at all. It can be easy to feel like, oh, Disability Pride Month is starting to get more like traction. People are talking about it. It could be easy to use the spotlight that comes from Disability Pride as a way to highlight like all of the inequity and ableism and barriers and all of these things just because of the spotlight. And I think it's crucial to the heart of Disability Pride and to especially activists like yourself who are working so hard to like take this time and celebrate and celebrate joy and celebrate like the beauty of the disability community. I think that that's so important during disability pride month to just remember that like this fight is, is not ending anytime soon. This work is not ending anytime soon and it is worth it. And not only just worth it, but necessary to celebrate and to show that disabled joy is freaking beautiful. Definitely, definitely. And I appreciate the kind words that both you and Aaron said, particularly Aaron, because I remember like when we first, you know, made it, which feels so long ago, <laughs> you know, um, when, you know, the space really started to get bigger and we was all trying to find each other so you know just thank you always for just being there oh of course Erin what does disability pride mean to you disability pride means not being ashamed of yourself and finding strength and joy in yourself and your community not just yourself but like other people who are also disabled. And it's about us. Like, that's it. It's not about parents of disabled people or unless you're disabled as well. But like, do you know what I mean? It's about us. And you don't see that a lot in out beyond the disability space. Like even, you know, organizations or companies or whatever, focus a lot on families. And this is our month in July. So that's what it means to me. It's centering, centering ourselves. I love that. Taking up space, basically. We need to take up space. Exactly. Yes, absolutely. And so this has just been such a beautiful experience of taking up space. All of these conversations, this one included... I feel so lucky to just get to be a part of just space about us, for us, by us. <laughs> it's great. 
So thank you so much for being on this episode. Aaron, I I love you. Thank you so much for holding my hand as I've crossed into like the disability sphere and learned about what it means to accept my disabled identity. I just am so grateful for this whole season. Melissa, Vel- I can't even express how grateful I am that you are on this final episode of the season. So much gratitude and in the spirit of disability pride, so much freaking joy. <laughs> yes, yes, we need it. We need it. I'm so glad that you all asked me to be a part of this. I'm honored, you know, and you know, I think this was definitely the conversation that I needed today. Yes. I am so thrilled for you. Have an amazing Disability Pride Month. And thank you so much for being on this podcast. Thanks to our listeners who have been here since the first episode. And we're out. (laughs) Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to write a review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Join us next time when we discuss more reasons why everything you know about disability is wrong. Everything you know about disability